Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Seems Like Jedi Culture. As always, I'm so excited to have you here, and if you are new, welcome to the pod. This is the place where we talk through wellness trends, rules, influencers, all of the things, so that you can have a no BS answer to is this legit or not? Because it's really complicated nowadays navigating the world out there and trying to figure out what the heck is real, what's not real, what you should listen to, and all of that good stuff. And as a reminder, although I am a registered dietitian, which by the the way, my name is Mallory Page. I didn't introduce myself. I often forget. This is just my educated opinion. I come to you with research, I come to you with the opinions of others, I ask you guys on my Instagram what you think about these things, but my goal with this podcast is for you to be able to take all this information and then make the choice that works for you because nutrition and wellness is very different from person to person because we are not all the same. So, I know that this episode is going to be a little bit of a deep dive. I mean, every episode's a deep dive, but some, as I've said before, have more research behind them. And this episode is one of those because we are talking about the low FODMAP diet or low FODMAP. Some people call it a diet. Some people call it a protocol. Everybody calls it different things. They're all technically the same thing. And there's a lot that goes into this. It's complicated. We're going to define the different disorders that people typically use low FODMAP for. We're going to talk about what FODMAP foods are. We're going to talk about the efficacy of it. Does it work? Does it not work? What are the risks of it? What are the positives of it? We're going through it all. So buckle up, everybody. Get excited. We're going in. But before we do that, I have a very quick announcement that I am so freaking excited to say because Live Unrestricted is open for applications and there are only a few spots left in this next round that is starting soon. If you are not familiar with Live Unrestricted, it is my 16-week program that transforms your relationship with food, body image, and exercise, especially if you feel like you've tried everything and nothing has fully worked. This is for you. It is for the woman that feels like Maybe they've tried on their own and got a little bit better. Maybe they've tried therapy or a bunch of other different techniques or even just tried a lot by yourself and you feel like you've made progress and you feel like things have gotten better and you're proud of yourself for that, but you're not where you need to be. You're not where you want to be. And it makes you question, am I the exception to this? Am I the exception to this rule of being able to achieve the full freedom? And I want you to know that you're not. I felt the same way as you, and that's exactly why I created this program, and that's also why I'm so freaking excited to be announcing that we're opening it again. We have now had hundreds of women go through this over the years, and we've never, ever had anyone not see a change at the end of it. So this is your sign to click the link below and apply. There is not much time left and spots are first come, first serve. If you have any questions, slide into my DMs and I am always there to answer them. So thank you for listening to my announcement and now let's get into the episode. So to start us off, we got to go about it the same way we always do and go through definitions. The key players of this podcast, you could say because we need to know about the low FODMAP diet itself, we need to know about FODMAPs, and we also need to know about the diseases or disorders, I should say, that they are treating. 
So the low FODMAP diet is described as a diet that reduces certain kinds of carbohydrates that can be hard for people to digest. It is often prescribed as an elimination diet to identify food triggers in those who have functional gastrointestinal orders such as IBS and can also be used to treat SIBO. Now you may be wondering as I go through that, okay, cool, so what the heck is a FODMAP? So FODMAPs actually stand for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And fermentable basically means that when they go in, your gut bacteria feed on these things and convert them into gases. This is a chemical process called fermentation, and fermentation is what creates gas for us typically. And a lot of the time we see an increase in gas production and therefore, you know, all the things that you would imagine come with gas production and when you're having that in your gut. In times where food is sitting in your gut for a longer period of time. Ocleosaccharides are a soluble plant fiber known as prebiotics, so they can be really beneficial. So that's the thing that I want to make note of. FODMAP foods are not bad foods. I mean, no food is a bad food, but I'm just clarifying. It's not like these things are things that you can't eat. So oligosaccharides typically include onions, garlic, beans, lentils, and many wheat products. Obviously, people that have celiac disease have a different reaction to these because they are totally allergic to wheat. That's the easiest way to describe it. But they do say that for some people, if they have a really heightened sensitivity to oligosaccharides, it could help to describe non-celiac gluten sensitivity. This is a theory. This doesn't necessarily mean that's true. Disaccharides are lactose and the fermentable sugar in this group, and the sugar is in dairy and human milk, so lactose intolerance obviously is very common in the world. Monosaccharides, that's fructose, so that's the sugar in fruit. There are only certain quantities and proportions, though, that this is the case where, like, monosaccharides are really high and where it affects you, and that will come into play a little bit later with the low FODMAP foods that I'm going to go through. And then the last one is polyols. So these are sugar alcohols. They are found naturally in some fruits, but mainly this is artificial sweeteners, and I'll dive into that even more in the future. So you may be wondering... Why are these things hard to digest? What makes them hard to digest? Well, they are fermentable short-chain carbohydrates, right? So that translated means two things. It means that there are sugar molecules that are linked together in chains, and they are fermentable by the bacteria in your gut. Molecules in those chains need to be broken down into single molecules in order to be absorbed. And these things are being absorbed in our small intestine. But FODMAPs cannot be broken down and they can't be absorbed there. So your small intestine has to draw in extra water to help move those FODMAPs through to your large intestine. And then the bacteria that are living in your colon are able to ferment those things. Basically, they eat them down, separate them. And when they do that, this produces gases and fatty acids as byproducts inside your gut. And you can imagine as someone ferments something, then it's going to create gas. And that gas can affect our gut health, lead to cramping, you know, like GI issues, all of that good stuff. So 
I hope that helps to give a little bit of an idea of what the FODMAPs are, how we describe them, all of those different things. And as you can imagine, when it comes to all the foods that have to be avoided on the FODMAP diet, there are a lot, considering all that we went through. So I'm going to talk about those in a second, but first I want to go back to what we were talking about originally, which is, okay, so why did we create this diet and who is this meant to be for? And that is specifically for people that struggle with IBS and SIBO as well. So you may not be familiar with SIBO. SIBO is the overgrowth of bad bacteria. And when we say bad bacteria, this is like pathogenic bacteria. These are things that we actually do not want in our gut. And we do have those things in our gut. Naturally, every single person does. But there are certain amounts that we want them in our gut. And we don't want that to have an overgrowth where there's too much of them and not enough good bacteria. Now, SIBO We don't know exactly what causes it. There can be any number of things that can cause this, but we can tell typically by a SIBO breath test. But if you listen to my gut health episode, which is episode six, I do have some criticism and some commentary on the SIBO breath test. There's other methods that we can use to test this. So I do want to allude to the fact that SIBO can often be misdiagnosed, although it is a real thing it's not always diagnosed in the way that it should be. Many symptoms of SIBO are the same as symptoms of IBS, and the low FODMAP FODMAP diet is often used because they are trying to either prevent the overgrowth of bacteria and or make it easier for your gut to break down foods. Also, if they aren't using the low FODMAP diet or even if they're doing the low FODMAP diet, they typically prescribe antibiotics or laxatives. And the whole idea of the antibiotics is that they basically kill the entire gut bacteria and then you repopulate with more positive bacteria. Now, IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome, is a functional GI tract disorder that affects the large intestine and produces symptoms such as bloating, gas, abdominal pain, obviously issues in the bathroom, all of those things. There are technically two different subtypes of this, so IBS-C and IBS-D, as you can imagine, constipation versus diarrhea. And the cause of IBS is also not known. They think some triggers could be medication, it could be stress, but honestly, there could be so many different things. We really, really do not know what it is. It's, it's completely unknown, and there's no conclusive studies that tell us what it could be. Now, the treatment for IBS could be a number of different things. Medications, probiotics, mental health therapies, or people will say the FODMAP diet. Something super important to note here is there is no cure for IBS. There is no way to get out of it. When someone gives the diagnosis, so if you go to a doctor, they give you a diagnosis of IBS, They, in a way, are kind of just saying, like, okay, cool, well, like, here's your symptoms, those align with IBS, we're just going to give you this, like, sticker of, like, all right, that's what it is. And we're going to talk about the implications of that a little while longer, or a little later in this episode, a little while longer. Sometimes I say phrases, and I just don't even know where I gather these phrases from. I just feel like it's something that I just pull out of thin air or just kind of combine words together to make a new phrase. But we will talk about that later. So the whole idea of using the low FODMAP diet 
in these circumstances of IBS or SIBO is that it's supposed to help relieve their symptoms because of a few different things. Number one, you're simplifying the foods that you're putting into your body, which the thought behind this is if you're really struggling to digest things and you put these different foods in, then maybe it's continually making it harder and harder on your gut to digest because there's so many different types of foods and things. So if we simplify it to only a few foods, it should be easier for you to digest. Number two, they think, okay, maybe one of these foods that you're eating is agitating your gut. There's a specific food, maybe out of the polyols or disaccharides or monosaccharides or whatever else it is, that is the most upsetting to your gut and that's causing overgrowth or that's causing stomach upset or whatever else, you know, could come about from that. So those are the two things they're typically going for. And I will just mention number three, this is more in SIBO. They do believe that there are certain foods that can cause more overgrowth because of how your bacteria is digesting them. I honestly should have, but did not look very in-depth into the research on this. I do think there's certain ways that this is true, especially with like candida overgrowth, which feeds off of like sugars and yeast. But I will say that's not always true that taking these certain foods out that they think are quote-unquote bad or causing overgrowth will actually change the bacterial environment. It just depends. Now, I want to say a big disclaimer here, just to remember as I went through all of this. If you are dealing with Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, celiac, or any other really serious GI disorder or issue, do not feel like you should, I really don't want you to listen to this podcast and think that I am diagnosing, that I am diminishing something that you're doing that works for you. Those are very, very complex, complicated disorders. And this podcast is meant to educate and to share a perspective, especially because there's so much misinformation around the low FODMAP diet and around gut health and IBD and all of that. But we are all very different especially if you are experiencing pain when you're eating right now, or if you are someone that deals with these type of disorders, always refer back to your doctor and your treatment team. But if you feel like you're dealing with that extreme pain, I would also go to the doctor and or go to a dietitian to get that all figured out. Now, with all that being said, we now need to get into how the heck does a low FODMAP diet work? What do you do with it? And some of you guys, I feel like you're going to be surprised by this because I have seen the low FODMAP diet administered in the wrong way or in a way that's not necessarily super safe more times than I have seen it administered the correct way, even sometimes by dietitians or by nutritionists. So calling, calling my own my own group out with that. But it it does happen and and it's important to be aware of because when this was designed, there was a specific way that it was supposed to be utilized. So how it works. Some people call this a two-step elimination diet and some people call it a three-step elimination diet. Those are not different approaches. They're just named different things. And the reason why it's argued to be two or three is because steps are, number one, stop eating the high FODMAP foods. So 
that's their first step. I just think it's funny because this is often what you go into a doctor's office and they will give you. Literally just something like this. Number two, you slowly reintroduce FODMAP foods to see which ones are troublesome. And then number three, if you are speaking in terms of the three steps, once you identify the foods that could be causing symptoms, you can avoid them or limit them while enjoying everything else worry-free. <laughs> so they recommend following this diet for two to six weeks. And this can also reduce symptoms of SIBO if you have really high levels of intestinal bacteria. And every three days, they suggest adding a new FODMAP food back into your diet because you have to do it one at, the, one at a time and allow yourself to fully see how it could affect you, right? Because just because you eat a food in one moment doesn't always mean the reaction is going to be right away. It can take a little bit of time. And if you have a symptoms, a symptom, I mean, then that could be because the FODMAP food that you are trying to reintroduce can cause symptoms and then you may want to avoid them. So that's a simplistic form of how you do this. I really want to note and emphasize that this diet is only supposed to be done for two to six weeks. Six weeks is a long time. I personally have heard more of, of two weeks. I don't know if they're getting six weeks from the whole process of reintegrating, but in my opinion, professionally, I would never, ever, 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 ever keep someone on this for six weeks. I don't see what the purpose is of that. And different people do practice it different ways. I hadn't found any studies that really spoke to if there was a specific period of time that was the most effective. But I do know that if you go for too long, it can become ineffective. So... Something else that I want to note is when they say slowly reintroduce them to see which ones are troublesome, this is not an easy process. Honestly, neither of these things are an easy process. It's not easy to know which foods are high FODMAP foods and even know what the heck you can even eat if you're not able to eat any of the FODMAP foods. And also, it's not easy to reintroduce things and know if your body is having a reaction or if it's not having a reaction. And that's something to keep in mind as well with the FODMAP diet. So that is how it works in a very simplistic form. And keep in mind those two things that I said, and I'll expand upon, again, the positives and negatives of it in a little bit. But the next thing that I want to talk about is what are the foods that are in the FODMAP category and then also, what are the efficacies? Like, what are the studies that speak to the efficacy of this diet? So, the foods. Let me read it out to you. And these aren't even just all the little things. These are the big categories. Dairy-based milk, yogurt, and ice cream. Wheat-based products such as cereal, bread, crackers, anything with wheat in it. Bread and lentils. Some vegetables such as artichokes, asparagus, onions, and garlic. Keep in mind, though, when you get into the nitty-gritty of it, there are also a whole list of foods that you can only have in certain amounts, like avocados, for example, is one of those foods. Some fruits, such as apples, cherries, pears, and peaches. And instead, you're supposed to base your meals around foods such as eggs and meat. Eggs and meat. Mallory, come on. 
Certain cheeses such as brie, camberette, cheddar, and feta, almond milk, grains like rice, quinoa, and oats, vegetables like eggplant, potatoes, tomatoes, cucumber, and zucchini, and fruits such as grapes, oranges, strawberries, blueberries, and pineapple. I would say that this is a very, very, very generous FODMAP list. I won't even read you a list that is super long because we would literally be sitting here the entire day from how long some of these are. <laughs> Let me just, let's do a little type. Did you like that time last time when I did a little type and you could hear me typing? I just pulled up one that is a longer one and there's probably like mm, 40 foods on this. And something that this last one didn't say is it wants you to avoid all sugars a lot of the time too, especially if it's more SIBO based. A lot of them will say you cannot have any sweeteners. So for example, this one shows that you need to avoid excess fructose, which is sugar, corn syrup, concentrated fructose such as fruit, dried fruit, apple, mango, pear, canned fruit, anything like that. All the lactoses. Fructans, which is in asparagus, beetroot, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, eggplant, fennel, garlic, leek, okra, onion, shallots, cereals, uh, mel watermelon, permission, I can't, like, permission, per permis, per okay, I'm gonna stop embarrassing myself. Um, beans, black beans, all that stuff, and then a whole wide range of different fruits as well. So that's a lot of things, and it's a lot of things to think about, especially if you don't have a ton of knowledge around food and what it is and what it's not. You can imagine how as you do this, you really start to think, oh, can I eat this? Can I not eat this? What is the amount that's okay? You can really start to get in your head, right? So that's the different foods that you need to keep in mind when we're talking about this. Now let's get into the different studies. So a lot of research studies have been done on the efficacy of the FODMAP diet in treating irritable bowel disease or irritable bowel, or sorry, SIBO. But at the same time, something that's important to note is a lot of them that I'm going to even be explaining are looking at the efficacy in the very first few weeks. So basically when you're doing the elimination phase, and a lot of them aren't looking at the efficacy in the reintroduction phase, obviously, because it's really hard to do that. It's not as measurable as it is when you're looking at eliminating. So to give credit to the researchers and to explain why that may be. And almost none of the studies are really speaking to how it looks after both of those phases in the third phase where you're trying to figure out how often you should be eating these things or if, it, if you have a reaction to them, so on and so forth. So the one study that I want to start off with that is a positive study that really was a comprehensive review gave a baseline number to what they've seen as the efficacy. How many times can I say efficacy to this diet? And they found that 50 to 86 percent of patients had a clinically meaningful response to the low FODMAP diet. And when they're speaking to clinically meaningful in this circumstance, it means that they saw a reduction in their symptoms, which most often is cramping, gas, you know, constipation, diarrhea, any of those type of things. They're seeing a reduced response when they started the low FODMAP diet. 
overall, if you look at the FODMAP diet as well, this is a different study, the evidence to date strongly supports the FODMAP diet as being a treatment for IBS. And treatment, I feel like, is a strong word because, as I told you guys, there's no specific treatment to cure IBS, but it's something that you can use in a toolkit. But they do note that further studies are required to, un- to understand any potential adverse effects to the long-term restriction of FODMAPs. So although it is a treatment, we don't know as much about what that's going to look like in the long term. So I will say from this, just to give my quick debrief, although I'll do more at the end, I do think that the low FODMAP diet can be effective, and that's what this research is telling us, especially in the first period for reduction of symptoms, but it's much harder to know how effective it is in the long term. And the next step of it that we're going to speak about now is how does that compare to the negative research that we have? And I shouldn't even say negative, just the criticism or the conversation around how it may not work well. So this research article that I'm going to read or talk to speaks to the fact that although we have had a lot of studies that speak to the success of the first phase of this, there have only been a few observational studies that have even looked at the second piece in the reintroduction phase. There is also controversy as to whether the low FODMAP diet has sufficient evidence to be considered a legitimate first-line therapy because there have been several issues raised. So these issues include inappropriate comparator placebo arms, which basically means there's not always an easy way to compare the placebo to the people that are actually introducing the diet. Failed blinding of the diet, right? So think about in a study, in a double-blind study, we ideally want the placebo and the people going through it to not be able to compare at all, right? Like imagine we give a pill to to pe- like we give a pill to the control and we give a pill to the people that are being studied. Neither of them should know that they're different because it's the same white pill. They look the exact same. They can't have any psychological aspects that play into their results. And this, you can't blind people to the fact that they're on the FODMAP or not on the FODMAP. There's also short durations of the controlled trials because of the nature of the diet. And also, it's it's hard to have someone being studied continuously when it's something so intense, right? You're eating this way multiple times a day for multiple weeks. And there's also a small number of participants and patients in a lot of these trials. There's additional criticism in the like subgroups based on predominantly bowel habits that have also not been studied. So we don't really know how it relates to the symptoms that are more bowel related. We're really getting into the whole, (laughs) the bowel talk here. So that's some of the criticisms to the studies themselves that speak to the fact that the low FODMAP diet is effective. But then there's a whole other conversation that comes up more around the area of, does the low FODMAP diet have more success than it can do harm? 
Did that make sense? Hopefully I did. So I actually want to read you guys this excerpt from this study that speaks about disordered eating. It is incredibly fascinating, and I think that hearing it in the way of an actual research article and how they put it can be really helpful because obviously I can tell you guys these things, but I think when we hear it in an actual study, it feels really different. So I'm going to read that now in three, two, and one. There is some evidence that people with gastrointestinal disorders who undergo dietary change may be at an increased risk for disordered eating behaviors. Satherly and colleagues systemically reviewed the evidence concerning disordered eating practices in patients with celiac disease, IBS, and IBD and found that the prevalence rates, 5 to 44%, were similar to those found in other dietary controlled health conditions whereby there is a constant need to monitor food intake. The authors hypothesized that in the patients with good dietary management and disordered eating, gastrointestinal symptoms may create food aversions and cause alterations to eating patterns. These individuals may be anxious and concerned with the preparation of their food and experience anxiety around unfamiliar foods, leading them to self-cater and or avoid social situations around eating. Such behaviors have recently been linked to orthorexia nervosa a condition in which people restrict their diet based upon its quality. This condition is associated with symptoms such as an obsessive focus on food choice, planning, purchase, preparation, and consumption. Food regarded primarily as a source of health rather than pleasure, an exaggerated faith that inclusion or elimination of particular foods can can prevent or cure disease of effective daily well-being. Or effective daily well-being. These traits can be seen in patients who strongly adhere to dietary management. The limited evidence in this area is concerning, as a condition impacts both the physical and psychological well-being of these patients. Regularly screening of eating pathology in gastrointestinal clinics could help facilitate appropriate referrals as well as direct clinicians to recommend alternative therapeutic strategies to patients displaying evidence of disordered eating. Thanks for sticking with me through my altered speaking patterns that always seem to get a little bit messed up. But if you couldn't tell, I finished reading that and I think that this is so freaking fascinating. I also cannot even express how appreciative I am that this is a conversation that is going on because honestly, even a few years ago, this wasn't even something that was being considered and especially not orthorexia. I don't know if you guys have listened to my story. If you haven't, I do have a podcast that's number two, I believe. Yeah, number two. I actually struggled with orthorexia, and I think they explained it in a really good way in this section and also how it can relate to gastrointestinal disorders. So this is another thing that comes into play with the low FODMAP diet and its efficacy that's really important to keep in mind. Another thing that came up that a different study spoke to is that the FODMAP diet can create food fears and problems with food in general, and that's why they need to be treated with different approaches, especially if someone is struggling with disordered eating. And then there was one more about how FODMAPs can actually risk causing nutrient deficiencies, which is really fascinating. I actually didn't think a ton about this, but you can imagine how in the short term, this wouldn't happen. You know, if you do two to six weeks, you'll probably be pretty fine. It's not going to cause a deficiency in that short of an amount of time, typically. 
But if you go on for longer amounts of time than you're supposed to, you totally could have a nutrition de- nutrient deficiency, especially because some people are avoiding so many different foods. So there really is both positive and negative and supportive and non-supportive information for the low FODMAP diet. But these are my positives that I take away and also the issues that I take away. So I'm bringing in a little bit more of my opinion now. So the number one thing that I want to speak about, actually, you know what? I'm keeping you guys on your toes. Let me share y'all's opinions first before I go into mine because that's important, right? So let's pull it up. I put up a question box and not even that long ago and I came back onto my Instagram and in five minutes I had like 40 different responses from people. So people have a lot to say on this. I'm excited to share. I'm just going to read some of them out to you guys. So Caitlin said, I know doctors that prescribe it and then give no information to their parents. (laughs) Their patients. Oh my God. (laughs) Patients. It gives fad diet. Sophia says, I actually tried it pre-ED because I actually have IBS. It wasn't too helpful, so I quickly went back to normal eating. I think it's fine when used in that context, but if you're someone without stomach problems, then I don't see the reason to. In that case, it seems like diet culture. Ezra said, did the low FODMAP diet because of my IBS made my relationship with food worse? I did it alongside a dietitian stationed in a hospital and my GI doc's office. Didn't end up helping and I was on it for eight months, lost weight, and dietitian had to force me to eat normally again because I was so scared to return to normal eating. This was four years ago and I still struggle with my relationship with food. Very interesting experience to make note of. Marlene said, it, deft, it definitely helped me at first. Was just diagnosed with gastroparesis and my life seemed to make a little bit more sense. But if it's not done correctly, it can be harmful just like a lot of diets. Seemed like the low acid reflux diet, etc. Personally, I think my 10 years of it led to my ED a bit. So she's saying that doing that actually led to her ED, even if it helped some. Allison said, I cried when my doctor told me to cut out my favorite foods and my stomach pains were 99% due to restriction of my ED. Oh my gosh, I'm going to talk about that. (sighs) Isabel said, impossible for me to actually fall and stick to. Caitlin said, it led me to restricting endless different foods until I felt like I couldn't eat anything and also didn't even help me figure out what was causing stomach problems. Claudia said, I tried it for a while to fix my bloating, but it turned into fuel for my eating disorder so fast. And last one, someone said, it's helpful in short term, but bloating for bloating, but not at all sustainable, very restrictive. Wow, you guys really brought a lot of perspectives. And of course, I couldn't read through them all. I will say that that's what my audience says. And you have to keep in mind when I read from my audience that most of the people that follow me do struggle with disordered eating, eating disorders, their relationship with food. So it may be a little bit skewed. I have heard of a few people that thought low FODMAP was helpful. And I definitely have heard of a lot of people that felt like it was helpful in the very, very short term. But in terms of the long-term and symptom reduction, most of the time I've heard people say that it just went back to the same place. So that's just gathering from other people's experiences and y'all's experiences. Of course, I can't pull every single person, although I wish I could. That'd be cool. Now, let's get into my positives and negatives. The first thing that I do think is a positive 
is that we're at least looking at nutrition as a way of treating things, which is not very common in the medical system. And I do feel like nutrition and the way that we look at our relationship with food is super, super powerful. So I think it's cool that we even have an option like that. Number two, if it's done correctly, it can help some people. Not everybody, but it can help some people. And I never want to discount the fact that I'm sure there are people even listening to this that have had positive experiences with it. And anytime that someone has a positive experience with something, especially when it comes to gut health, I always feel grateful for the fact that they found something that worked for them. Number three, a dietitian is actually often being recommended as a way to implement this care plan, which I think is super exciting. You know, I love when dietitians get to be more involved in the process. I think this could be even more beneficial if these dietitians were also allowed to or trained to speak to the more disordered elements that can come up and just like the preventative measures. But I still always love when the field of dietetics is being recommended to people. Number four is I do think it's nice that this actually has research behind it. You guys know I'm a big research girl and it's really amazing when we see a treatment method being talked about that at least has research at some points of the process. Now, I still think you need to take that research and then evaluate how much it makes sense because of the pitfalls of it, such as not having research really in the reintroduction phase. But still, at least we have looked into it rather than just like throwing out a random plan, right? How many times do I talk about the fact that on my TikTok when I scroll through, everybody and their mother is telling you that there's some like gut health plan that they need to follow? None of those things are researched. Ever. (laughs) So they're just throwing it out in thin air. Now, in terms of the issues... The number one thing is that I just see it so poorly administered so often, and I see it administered in the wrong cases for the wrong reasons. So something about IBS is that IBS is really often overdiagnosed, and it also can be a misdiagnosis. Many times when people come in with GI issues, we don't give a deep enough pull and look in depth enough to what they're dealing with. And this is frustrating on multiple fronts, right? Because they could come in with restriction and an eating disorder, and that is 100% causing their gut health issues. Like, no question about it. That is at least contributing, if not the total cause. But doctors aren't really trained and don't look into that. They could come in with something really severe, like celiac disease or ulcerative colitis, something that's really, really serious. But it can just be pawned off like, oh, yeah, okay, like those are your symptoms. They check the boxes. It's IBS. Oftentimes, doctors don't run like a CT scan or they don't do a endoscopy because or a colonoscopy because they don't want to or it's too much work. Or they'll opt for a less invasive, less time-consuming option, such as like a SIBO breath test or something like that. And even with SIBO... SIBO is often misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed, and I know of people that have gotten diagnosed with SIBO that actually later on found out they didn't have SIBO, and they went on low FODMAP or they went on these restrictive diets similar to it, and it made it way, way worse. So I just think it's really harmful, and this isn't just a criticism of the low FODMAP diet, but the fact that so often we are just kind of looking at the surface of an issue rather than getting deeper. And I just want to mention that nutritionists 
or, sorry, not nutritionists. What I'm trying to say, holistic doctors, dietitians, and nutritionists actually all do this too. They will obsess over these deeper reasons. So like if you go into a more quote unquote regular doctor, they're going to look more at the surface level. If you go into a more functional doctor, they're going to look deeper, but sometimes they're so accustomed to looking deeper in a way that follows the same pattern and they'll just put someone on a really restrictive protocol because they think that's what they need to do and they're getting to the root cause. I don't know if that makes sense, but if it doesn't, always feel free to DM me and ask any questions. Along with this, doctors don't have nutrition training. And so I think it's a positive that they're recommending the low FODMAP in the sense of, okay, we're at least trying to incorporate nutrition, like I was saying in the positives, but they can give out just basically very blanket advice of like, oh, okay, yeah, just like go on low FODMAP. And when they do that, it it doesn't always work out because they're not explaining how to do it. They don't explain how do you take out foods? What foods do you take out? How long do I do this? What are the symptoms that I'm looking for? How should I reintroduce? They kind of just throw people into it and they may not even recommend a dietitian. They just give some handout and that's not helpful. And it's also not helpful to just basically give the low FODMAP diet when you don't know what else to do. It, It should be taken seriously because the effects of it can be really harmful. So with all of that being said, the next part that I want to talk about with just the low FODMAP diet is the bigger implications and what this looks like in regards to disordered eating and gut health issues and what I know a lot of you guys are dealing with. So to do this, I want to go into a story because if you guys know me, you know that I work with women that struggle with disordered eating and eating disorders and I've worked with hundreds of women. I've also struggled with an eating disorder myself, specifically orthorexia, that where I did a lot of elimination, even of a lot of these foods. And I work with a ton of women that struggle with their gut health, even IBS, SIBO, stuff along those lines. So there's a really interesting intersect between gut health and eating disorders, And even just struggles with food, that's very important to mention, as well as mental health and anxiety and depression. So when it comes to an eating disorder, 98% of people that have an eating disorder, and I personally would argue that even if this is on a scale, we see the exact same thing within disordered eating or struggles with your relationship with food and exercise and body image, etc., have a comorbid gut health condition. So when you keep that in mind, think about how many women and men that are struggling with an ED could be diagnosed with IBS, comorbid gut health condition. Like that, that is exactly what they're typically getting as a diagnosis. Now also think about how many people there are that struggle with eating disorders and disordered eating. When it comes to eating disorders, I think anorexia is around 11% as of recently in the world, but when it came to disordered eating and they've done some some polls on this, especially in the younger population, they sometimes see between like 44 and 77%. So really, really high. On top of that, 
the most people that we see that struggle with disordered eating, although these are not the only people, I'm just saying the most people that we see are women. Comparatively, the most people that we see struggling with IBS are also women. Now, I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that IBS and IBD are only related to disordered eating and eating disorders because that is simply not true. I have known many people and continue to know tons of people that struggle with IBS or IBS, IBSD, uh, sorry, IBS, IBD, IBS, C or D or whatever it is that have never struggled with their relationship with food. But a lot of those same people have struggled with anxiety which is another thing that can contribute because obviously we have that gut brain access that we all have become much more familiar to. I think it's much more popular nowadays to know how those things connect. And we know that anxiety, even if it is not the cause of IBS, can contribute to the symptoms that we are experiencing. So why I mention all of this is because what I often see is when clients come in to me and I work with 99.9% women, just because that's typically who comes with me. I do work with men, but not in the, not as frequently. So when women come to me, almost every single one of them has gut health problems. And many of them have been diagnosed with IBS along with an eating disorder, or at least they know they're struggling with disordered eating. Now, what they often come to me with is this confusion because they are probably, or at least have in the past, tried something for their IBS. And also, they are trying to figure out how to heal from their disordered eating or how to have a healthiest relationship with food. Many of them have tried the low FODMAP diet or tried some type of eliminating food intolerances that they think they have or something along those lines or gluten, dairy, sugar, because you see it all over the internet and try to figure out how to get their bloating to go away and if those things are going to work. And I say bloating because what I should have mentioned earlier is even if these people are not diagnosed with IBS or IBSD um, or IBD, they oftentimes are really ad- have adverse reactions to the bloating that they could experience or the bloating that they're perceiving. So regardless, they're typically trying to get that to go away, especially if they're struggling with their body image because they perceive that as even more extreme than it is sometimes. Not saying that it's not extreme or not painful, but I'm just speaking to how it can all come together. A lot of these people don't have the results that they're truly looking for from low FODMAP and or taking out foods, or they've been doing low FODMAP and now they don't know how to reincorporate foods. And sometimes they may even just be so exhausted from doing such restrictive elimination for such a long amount of time that they feel like they don't know where to turn because they're so tired. They want to incorporate more foods, but now every single time they implement a food again, they feel like they're having a reaction. So they don't know if they're intolerant to it or if that's what's bad for them or what they should do, or if they have a gut health problem or SIBO or what it is. So with all of that being said, what they question is, what do I do? Is, should I do have 
to go back on low FODMAP and continue to do that? Do I need to take out more foods? Do I need to add in foods? Do I need to cure my ED issues before I do this? And the thing that I see over and over and over and over and over and over again, I've never actually had someone, maybe, I mean, yeah, honestly, I've never had someone that I did not believe needed to treat the struggles with their eating first. And the reason why I say this is because what they miss when implementing low FODMAP is that taking out foods and then looking to see if you have a reaction when you add them back in is incredibly anxiety inducing. Not to mention because many people are either so confused about what they can eat or they can eat so little or they become really restrictive as they're doing low FODMAP, there can be times of weight loss. That does not mean that it always happens, but there can be or even perceived weight loss because you feel better when restricting or when not as bloated. And so with all of that being said, the whole process of reimplementation often kickstarts the GI issues again in itself because there's so much anxiety that comes with looking to see if a food is going to create a reaction that you're kind of screwed before you even start. And this is also why I mentioned just anxiety in general in relationship to IBS because even if there isn't the disordered element of it, if you have really heightened anxiety, even if it's not for a disordered reason that you want to take out the food or not implement it again, it can just become so scary because you're trying to avoid this pain that was coming up or the past symptoms that you have. So you may be wondering, okay, but why does low FODMAP work? And also, why would it work if someone is actually just experiencing bloating and symptoms from disordered eating rather than actually having an issue that will be solved by eliminating foods? And that is because whenever you take something out and you really simplify it a ton, it's obviously body, it's obviously easier for our body to digest right? If you're eating one thing, it is easier for your body to not have reaction than when you're eating a lot of different things. But this is in the short term. Because in the long term, the number one thing that we know for sure is the most beneficial to our gut health is to have a diversity of bacteria. And what happens when we start to restrict, not just in the short term, but in the long term, is we will reduce that bacterial diversity and also the strength of those bacteria a lot of the time. And so once we do that, it can affect our gut microbiome so much that then when we try to add back in these different things, it creates symptoms even to foods that we were eating in the past that weren't harmful or that shouldn't have a reaction for us. And the only way that we actually start to become accustomed to a food again in terms of digestion is by eating it consistently. But when you're told, oh my gosh, don't introduce these low FODMAP or don't introduce these FODMAP foods again if they're making you have symptoms and you need to avoid them, then we start to recognize, oh my gosh, there's only so few foods I can eat. What am I supposed to do? I I have all these problems. It's a whole spiral, right? And that is exactly why I say that we really need to work on the mental piece, whether that just be the anxiety that you're experiencing and trying to reduce that around food and or needing to work on the disordered eating piece of it 
because otherwise we're never going to be able to sift through what's truly causing a reaction and it can unintentionally elongate the amount of time that you're on it. I mean, that girl said she was on it for 10 years. That is way, way too long, as we've talked about. And I feel for her and the fact that a practitioner at some point either led her astray or did not inform her on that. So I know that that's all a little bit complicated as I went through that, but I hope that it makes it clear to see that if you're sitting here listening to this podcast and you are struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder as well as IBS and you have someone saying, oh, you should do this elimination diet or you should do low FODMAP or you're working with some holistic dietitian, nutritionist, naturopath, functional doctor, whatever it is that says that you need to take out all these foods, in my opinion, they are wrong. I will say a strong opinion because it is literally a waste of time. Even if you figure out the foods that are actually upsetting you, which will be very hard because you're not going to know where your reactions are coming from, whether they're coming from stress around just eating the food in general, stress around the fact that you don't want to gain weight, stress around losing control, stress around body image, whatever it is, you're still not going to actually know what you should be eating and what you shouldn't. And oftentimes those reactions were at the end of the day, created by the disorder itself and the restriction itself. So the best bet that you're going to have is to heal the disordered eating, heal that anxiety, really neutralize all foods, add them all in. And then as you do that, your body is going to become so much more trusting of you that there may be some foods that show up that are much more random than you probably think they would be that may not work as amazing for your body and you can incorporate those in the levels that actually make sense for you. Even when I was struggling with my disorder and as I started to re-implement foods with recovery, I had horrible reactions, debilitating bloating, extreme pain. There were random foods that I swore were causing reactions that were completely in my head. Then as I actually recovered, there were these very random foods, like a a vegetable. And no, it was not any of the FODMAP vegetables that was causing upset randomly, which was so weird to me. And I was like, why is this? And I took it out for a little bit of time, not even extremely. I literally just was more mindful of how often I was eating it. And then when I added it back in, I was fine. So that was a very long story. But I wanted to give a perspective on how these things can all tie together. And if you feel like you still have questions, please reach out. Also, this is what I made Live Unrestricted for. I mean, I have helped so many people that feel like they're dealing with the gut health issues. They don't know what to do with their relationship with food, all of that type of stuff. And we navigate this with you. We always talk about gut health within the the program because it's something that everyone deals with to an extent. And it's always personalized as well because we give you the tips, we set the goals for you, we answer the questions that you specifically have to we guide you through this reintroduction process if you feel like you're stuck in the, the elimination mindset right now. But let's be done with all of that and go into my rating on this. This is a really interesting one. Because I feel like at its core, it was in no way invented 
because of diet culture, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think this was something that they made as this diet to be diet culture-y. But I also feel like any diet in a way can be diet culture, especially if it's not used really as a protocol for two to six weeks, but actually more used as a diet, if that makes sense. So I think it's kind of different on how you're going about it, how long you're doing it, the way that you're looking at it, why you're doing it, all of those type of things. So I feel like I'm going to give the low FODMAP diet in itself just of how diet culture it is from a scale of zero to 10, like a three. But personally, and this is again going to be different for everybody, if I were to have to rate it in terms of efficacy and how successful it is, I would give it maybe like from what I've seen, also a three. So it's a three on the low end of like, if zero is not effective at all and 10 is the most effective, I would only give it like a two to three in in terms of how effective it is in the long term, especially with all the risks that are potentially there. But also only a three on the scale of like 10 being the most diet culture, zero being the least diet culture. So not super diet culture if used correctly, but also not really that effective. So I don't know if it's worth it. That's my opinion. Again, this this especially can be very, very different for different people. But I hope that this overall review was just helpful in terms of learning more about low FODMAP, learning how it should actually be implemented, learning what it is, learning the potential risks, the potential benefits, all of those good things. I, as always, loved getting to chat with you guys today and definitely send me any questions, recommendations, things that you want to hear about on this podcast because I'm always open to anything that you guys have on your mind. And my link to Live Unrestricted is below as well as my Instagram. And we are currently accepting applications for the next round of Live Unrestricted. So I highly suggest going in and applying if you have even been considering it. I'll talk to you guys next week and that's it.